0: I don't know your denominational background, but I thought I'd walk you through mine. I was raised Roman Catholic. I really gave my heart to the Lord in an Assembly of God church. When I went to college, I attended a Word of Faith congregation. Then, an Evangelical Methodist congregation. Then, after college, an Evangelical Presbyterian congregation. And then once I got married and moved to Florida, I was in a free Methodist congregation. Then a Presbyterian Church in America congregation. And it was in this environment where the pastor encouraged me that because of some other career sites I had set, that I might want to go to seminary. So I went to a seminary in Orlando called Reformed Theological Seminary. And it was into this environment um, that... In this environment, I heard for the first time somebody ask me the question, Are you Reformed? Now, I had no idea uh, what that meant. Um, I just know that I didn't like the way they were asking me. Um, There was something about it that made me feel like they were saying there was something wrong with the way I believed or something wrong with the way I felt. And it bothered me. It really did. It upset me. And it made me not want to be reformed. And my rebellious streak in me, of course, would play into that. You tell me I have to do something, I'm more than likely going to do pretty much the exact opposite. And so in, in this environment, though, it didn't take long for me to discover that that is why they called it Reformed Theological Seminary, that a lot of the people around there were reformed. You don't know what that means, maybe. Let me help you. Since it's the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, here's your 30-second history lesson. Uh, the Protestant Reformation had four main branches of it, and a lot of it was geographical in nature. The Lutheran Church, of course, begun by Martin Luther in Germany, and it spawned all sorts of different Lutheran spin-offs after that. There was the Anglican Church, which was the Protestant Church in England primarily, and it is what has produced modern-day Anglicanism here in the United States. You also had the Anabaptist tradition, which produced the Mennonites and the Amish. Um, and then there was this fourth branch of the Reformation known as the Reformed. And, and I say it like that because now I am theologically in this camp, so I can make fun of it. You can't if you're not, but I can. Um, that's the way it goes in Brothers and Sisters Land. But... This group, the Reformed, are the ones that produced Presbyterians from Scotland and uh, the Dutch Reformed from the Netherlands and a host of non-denominational churches that have kind of attached themselves to the theological underpinnings of this particular Reformed movement. So giving the people of my seminary experience the benefit of the doubt, they were asking me, are your theological presuppositions aligned with this branch of Protestantism. That's giving them the best of intentions. More than likely, because it's not the first time I've experienced this in the world, more than likely, they were asking, do you have the enlightened understanding of theology that I do? I don't know what denomination you came from, but I can assure you that I have been asked some variation of that question in just about every type of church I've ever been a part of. Do you do this? Do you do that? I remember at the Assembly of God Church where I really gave my heart to the Lord, a girl asking me, had I given up secular rock and roll yet? That was the measure of spiritual growth. And I had to say no. (laughs) I had not developed that depth depth of spirituality just yet. Everywhere I've been, I've seen this downside of church culture. Churches are always in danger of splitting along these lines. We have become a series called Fault Lines, Division in the Corinthian Church, where we're trying to discover, for our benefit, the places where these fault lines existed. Now, if you don't get the metaphor, here's a picture for you of what a fault line is. And this is pertinent for us in Southern California because this is actually a map of Southern California. And you've got two tectonic plates Grating against each other, grinding against each other, and when these things uh, finally release some pressure, it creates waves, shock waves that create earthquakes, and we live in that in that region. This is the earthquake capital really of the world, and down the street from us at Caltech is the earthquake detection capital of the world. These are the world's leading uh, students and 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 academics about this whole technology of earthquake detection. So it's a fascinating world in which we live. And it can be just theoretical until you experience one. And for a lot of people in our church uh, who lived in Southern California in 1994, the Northridge earthquake was a testimony to the reality that bad things happen when fault lines finally give Earthquakes produce destruction. And in churches, if you're not tuned to where these fault lines are, and you aren't careful, you aren't prepared, if you haven't built the structures in place to handle the quake, so to speak, you end up with, well, the disaster that many of us have experienced inside churches that have either split or had really awful kind of in-church fighting. And this is obviously what was going on in the Corinthian church. A vibrant congregation. And you know, all young churches are vibrant at some level. It's kind of the appeal. You know what I mean? It's organic, it's fun, it's exciting. We're in year seven. Another applause line, please. No, seriously, we are here, but at the same time, this is the moment where we're supposed to go, okay, so far so good. No big earthquakes at Prism, but there are some fault lines and some places where we could potentially see some devastation later if we're not careful. This is one of the places that was the case, one of the areas where the Corinthians were divided. As broken human beings, we're not only prone, as we talked about last week, to associate with certain leaders who make us look better. We're prone to take pride in our supposed superiority of understanding about what is true about God. By nature, we are proud people. Theology proper is defined as the study of God. Now, whether you think your study of God is more orthodox and pure, or more enlightened and informed and socially just, or just more experienced in the Holy Spirit, we all have a sinful inclination to feel superior, which can produce in us a posture of theological arrogance. And so that's really fault line two this week, theological arrogance. Churches divide this way. The dynamics were in play in Corinth as well. Jane Gropp, who's a friend of mine, and she's a member here at the church, and this past summer she taught through her commentary that she wrote about 1 Corinthians. And in this, she pointed out that certain factions in Corinth were rejecting Paul's authority based on a cultural value of eloquence of speech. And what happened is, is these, these Christians, as we all are, get enamored with the giftedness of leaders. And these particularly divisive leaders were really gifted. And what happens is is that people cease asking questions. They cease looking at what's being taught. Uh, They cease trying to figure out if the underlying theology is healthy. And that's really what ultimately our goal is, not only in this sermon but in our whole study. And then actually every week at PRISM, is that we want to know who God is from Scripture. We want to study Him. We want to know what His purposes are for us. We want this to be true and right and healthy. Both individually and corporately, we are seeking to study properly theology, the study of God. Theological health is rooted ultimately in God's ultimate purpose, which is... God's desire for us to see his glory. When I hear people say that, sometimes it rubs me a little bit raw, too. I don't know, you know, like my brother Brooks Potiger loves John Piper, and John Piper, like every other word out of John Piper's mouth is the glory of God. And so it's kind of like, okay, I get it. It's all about God's glory. But what's fascinating about really studying the glory of God is it does elevate your sense of value When you realize that the glorious, majestic God of all creation thinks highly of you. So instead of trying to pump yourself up full of love steroids, you should be pumping yourself up about the glory of God. That's what's going to naturally elevate your sense of being precious and valuable. You've got the God of all creation who's more glorious than you know. And the more you develop an understanding of his quote-unquote status... The more you understand just how majestic it is that he loves and cares for you, the more glorious he is to you and to me, the more secure, the more loved we feel. So our pursuit is the glory of God. John Owen, a classic Puritan from England, wrote this, God's purpose in Christ shines out from his heart, a purpose that was hidden there from eternity. This purpose was to restore all things to a state infinitely above that which was first created to the praise of His glorious wisdom and goodness. God's purpose also was to raise sinners to an inconceivably better condition than they were before sin entered the world. God now appears more glorious than, he, than ever He did before. Now He is seen to be a God who pardons iniquity and sin and is infinitely rich in grace. For our purposes in this study, we'd like to prepare for the potential division of a church along theological lines by studying what Paul would say about what constitutes healthy theology. And there are certain characteristics that should mark and result from our discovery of God's glory. So there are three characteristics of a healthy theology. And the first from Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 2 is this. A healthy theology is comprehensible, and, and he says, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. The critics of the Apostle Paul were saying that his sermons were a little, a little milky. You know, he was a little, little bad. He wasn't very impressive. You can read in 2 Corinthians 10.10 10 says, his, letter, his letters are weighty, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Now, These passages are always comforting to me, because over the years, I have had from time to time people say to me, Pastor Chuck, I love your sermons. They're so simple. And there's a part of me that thinks, thank you, Um, because see, where I come from in the Presbyterian world, that's not necessarily a compliment. Uh, In the Presbyterian world, you want your sermons to be intellectually deep and theologically precise and demonstrative of your rooting in the great Puritans of old. That's how you want your messages characterized. So it's been really challenging at times when people come to me and go, just about anybody could understand your messages. It's terrific. My kids love your sermons. I mean, you know, I try not to hear from my Presbyterian perspective, you're really not a very in-depth teacher at all. But Paul is saying that his intent in coming to Corinth, was that he wasn't going to impress everybody. He wasn't going to throw down what he could do. I have at times been to seminars and listened to sermons and thought to myself, what in the world is this person talking about? Uh, Only to be surprised that there were people, and uh, sometimes the ones who brought me to the seminar, who flocked to an individual because they had some improved way of seeing God's world. And in Corinth, it was what were known as the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. These were the real thinkers of their day. They not only influenced the way oratory was practiced, it it was a thinking and a process of thinking that made... Uh, People question whether or not a gospel presentation was really relevant. And Paul, into this environment, says, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Oftentimes, it's the so-called depth or wisdom that gets gurus, uh, makes them attractive. And then hearing from them and, and, and understanding them makes people feel superior because of their now much more lofty understanding of things. And once again, in play is our pride. Yet ironically, our arrogance implies that we are bored with the old, old story. And the irony is is that some of the most theologically arrogant people in Protestant America are people from my theological tradition, and yet we have, in theory the lowest view of human beings of anybody on the planet. And we also have the lowest bu- uh, view of human capabilities, apart from the grace of God, of any group of theo- uh, people, theological people I know. And yet there's still sort of this gravitation towards, do you understand theology the way I do? We're fascinated in our culture with new and improved And one need only watch television for a short while to see that this is one of the main strategies in advertising. You you get discontent with what you have, so you'll compulsively purchase the next thing. I love my iPhone 5, but I found out recently I'm way, way behind. I mean, we are three itinerations of this thing improved. Uh, There are things on the new iPhone that I didn't even know I needed. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm really happy with this. My 52-year-old self is already challenged by most of the technology on here. I'm not bored and want to take on more. And oftentimes, this is the case with Christians, and it certainly was with the Corinthians. Teachers enter in, or they are on the periphery of church, and they eloquently offer their superior wisdom, which in turn make some of us take pride in our newfound understanding. A healthy theology is really one that anyone can comprehend and know. Paul said this in the chapter previous to chapter 2. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul very much was interested in people understanding the gospel more than seeing him as somebody who was a super prophet. A healthy theology, if you're going to be someone who proclaims what you believe, one of the things that will indicate its health is if people can actually understand what you're talking about. Secondly, a healthy theology is cross-centered. Paul says this in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is not a miracle center message. This is not an intellectually impressive or even a socially relevant message. And whenever the so-called theme of Christianity is absent of what Jesus has done on the cross, you can be sure that the theology has been sidetracked. It's been hijacked. The gospel is centered on Christ's death and resurrection, and so should be our theology. And with all of his theological insight and superior education in the Old Testament, Paul leaned not on this knowledge, but instead on his knowledge of how Jesus had restored him by dying on a cross. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 through 24, this is how he describes the culture in which he found himself. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Jews demanded miraculous signs. The Greeks wanted superior intellect, culturally Paul was being sullied for not being impressive enough in his oratory. He wasn't referencing the greatest wisdom of antiquity. And perhaps his his ministry wasn't dotted with the miraculous all over the place. And this seems like a page out of contemporary Christianity. And it is certainly the dynamic tension in which our church resides... We are not smart enough or deep enough for some. We're not miraculous or experientially charismatic enough for others. But early on, the movement we're a part of, the leadership of our church, we all decided to make a commitment to make the gospel of Christ's death for our sins not just the launching pad from which we get to all the other cool things that Jesus wants to do in your life, but the center of everything. It is the hub in the center of the wheel. Everything is connected to the gospel. Now, we will talk about maturity in Christ next week, as you can see on your bulletin. But cross-centered theology remembers why we do the works of a Christian. And this is often where the divisive person in the church begins to critique the church. And this is not new to Prism. I mean, This has happened in our seven years already. It happened in the churches that I was a part of previously. There's somebody who comes and says, we are not doing enough, fill in the blank. That's the starting point for judgment, for division. We should be doing more. Fill now, that's true. There are things we should be doing more of. And I'm certainly appreciative of the fact that we are nowhere near what I hope God is doing in us to make us a biblically reflective church. But that said... Who is? And at this time, we say, you know, our good works are something we want to see, but it's a result of a growing comprehension of the gospel. It's a result of what Jesus did. We serve God. We love God because we have been restored to fellowship with him by grace through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. It's because we are now free from judgment and free from fear of god that we receive love from him and then turn and love our neighbor as we've been loved so even when we recognize a deficiency in our good works the solution to that is to not line everybody up and threaten them it's to say clearly we don't understand what god has done for us what the majestic creator of the universe has condescended to do we clearly don't understand Who we are as the beloved daughters and sons of God. This is the problem. Because if we really understood that, we would probably do this more. So let's dive in and get to know Him more and ask that He would work in and through that. When we tend towards pride because we're theologically superior to others it it generally is indicative of too much pride in what we've done and not enough in what Christ has done a healthy theology is comprehensible and it's cross-centered and here's the third characteristic that Paul would give us for a healthy theology It, it creates humility This is what it does. A healthy theology produces a person who thinks less of themselves, thinks more of others, and as Tim Keller would say, thinks of themselves less. Paul says this in verses 3 through 5 And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul could have impressed them with the merits of his educational background, the drama of his conversion, the miraculous deeds that had been done through him or a host of other things. Instead, Paul intentionally makes himself a background player in the promotion of Christ's glory. And from the standpoint of of his detractors, Paul was not bringing anything new to the discussion. His message wasn't adorned with pomp, and it appeared to be nothing, and he appeared to be nothing impressive himself. And yet Paul says this is precisely why the gospel could be seen and Jesus could be seen as impressive. In verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 1, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, The strongest human being in the world is weak compared to God. And, you know, even at at our weakest, we are really not that far from the strongest person in the world. See, God is so lofty, so majestic. One of my mentors is fond of saying that there should be something about your life and your church that is only attributable to the grace of God i think we could say that at our church we're sort of i think continuously amazed that god is making our church thrive it certainly isn't because of the godliness of your pastor i can assure you of that it certainly isn't because of the eloquence and the depth with which we plumb the great truths of the reformation i watch football you know that's what i do with my spare time i I'm just an average guy who likes going to Dodger games. I I don't know how I got here. But this is sort of kind of what we're about, is saying, you know, what does it mean for us to be people who just follow Christ in our our daily life? Paul understood this concept of deferring to Christ. It was in so-called weakness of his presentation that people began to put their faith in God and didn't refer to themselves as Paulites or of the order of Paul or some such thing. But it wasn't just his message. Understand, Paul had made a regular habit of acknowledging his struggles. Paul had made himself weak by highlighting areas where Jesus' grace needed to work in his life or else he wasn't going to make it. Paul found God's power there. In his next letter, or his third letter to the Corinthians, which we call 2 Corinthians, didn't mean to confuse you there. He said this, A person who's growing in Christ is growing in their understanding of how holy God is and how unworthy they are of the grace of God. When I first came to the Lord and was working my way through my college church experiences, the question often proposed to us then was, are you spirit-filled? Now, the language of the charismatic churches I was a part of, Spirit-filled means, do you pray in tongues? Did you have an experience with God that led to you praying in a foreign language that you didn't know or couldn't comprehend yourself? And that this experience of praying in tongues was indicative of now the power of God being released in your life in a new and powerful way. Uh, The implication was that... uh, if you hadn't experienced this power of God in a supernatural way, then you would not be able to experience the advanced form of Christianity that God wanted to take root in your life. Until you had this experience, you're going to live a substandard Christian life. And for many of us who come from charismatic churches, what we already know is that the gift of tongues doesn't fix you. The history is filled with Spirit-gifted people whose lives were train wrecks, just like the people who aren't Spirit-filled or Spirit-gifted. The superstars of American Christianity, some of whom posture on TV, are often guilty of the sin of pride and arrogance, all the while they would claim that they were free from the seedy sins that you, the masses, cling to. You think about it, though. When you look at Jesus' life, who did he hang around with? Tax collectors and sinners. And who could he not stand to be near? The theologically arrogant, precise people. This should tell us something. Jesus loved humble people. Proverbs 3, James 4, all say again and again, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Communally And I would say even more practically for you if you want to take it outside of our church to your family, to your friendships. This is one way you can combat divisiveness in your marriage, in your family life. Humility is one huge key to relational health. Because you always have to be in the posture of saying, I know I could be wrong, so how can I love you better? Humility is the normal and healthy response in our growing understanding of the majesty of God. The growing believer, like Paul, comes into a greater sense of their brokenness, not a superior sense of their holiness. If you feel like you're sometimes like walking backwards, like from the development of your character, that's a normal feeling, and it's really a math thing. Because while your sanctification, you may have moved on a scale of 1 to 100, from maybe 5 to 50, the problem is is that your scale of the holiness of God has gone from 100 to a million. If that makes sense, what I'm saying is is that your understanding of the majesty of God is going to grow exponentially faster than the progress you're going to make as a Christian and so you're always going to be in this place of feeling like, I'm not really making any progress at all. I don't feel like I'm, making, I'm changing a bit. And, and in reality, you are, and you should be. But because you're understanding just how holy the Lord is, you probably are never going to get to feel like, hey, I'm making real progress here. And the person that you see posture themselves that way, they're an unhealthy person. They are theologically and personally unwell. As we mature, we realize that all we are, all we've been created to be, all that we have and all that we will have is only because of the kindness and love of our Savior, seen primarily in his act of dying on the cross to pay for our sins and restore us to himself. A healthy theology creates humility, a healthy theology is cross-centered, and a healthy theology is comprehensible. And as we come to the communion table today, we're reminded of these three things. Jesus has broken down the gospel for us in such a simple way, sitting at the table with his friends and saying, let me see if I can explain this. This bread, this is my body, it's going to be broken for you. So that your sins can be forgiven. And this wine, this is my blood. You see, it's going to be spilled so that yours doesn't have to be. And I'd like you to drink this and remember that. It's always about what I've done for you. That's always how you have comfort coming into the presence of God to receive what you need. It is always the way that we express gratitude to God by recognizing what he has done for us. So it's in that spirit that I ask you to come and prepare for the table this morning. Let us pray.